The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Stephen Apfelbaum. He is a fellow of the Ecological Society of America and founder and chairman of Applied Ecological Services, which is one of the largest ecological sciences and restoration firms with offices across the U.S and with projects worldwide. Mr. Affelbaum is co-author of several books, including Restoring Ecological Health to Your Land, which was written to help landowners and land stewards develop and implement land restoration programs. He is also the author of the award-winning book, Nature's Second Chance, which was named one of the top 10 books for understanding what we can do about climate change, and it is also one of the New York Times' top environmental books. He is also the author of a more lighthearted and enjoyable book titled Laughing in the Wilderness for those of us who understand how enjoyable and pleasurable and funny it is to spend time in the outdoors. Now, Mr. Affelbaum and Applied Ecological Services have contributed to some of the most widely recognized innovative model projects addressing land use change, wildlife, stormwater, and human quality of life. He is featured in the film Unbroken Ground, which you can see online, free of charge. It explores the connection between food, agriculture, and climate change. He holds adjunct lectureship positions and research appointments at Harvard Graduate School of Design and other institutions. Welcome, Mr. Apfelbaum. Welcome. Thank you very much. Well, I heard you speak at the annual meeting of the Missouri Prairie Foundation, and I was truly struck both by your love of nature and for your hope for the future. And in spite of all the doom and gloom news that we hear about climate change that is very real, and there's it seems like a headline a week about some sort of natural disaster occurring as a result of climate change, you really left your audience with great hope for what we could do right now to make a significant impact. So I'm thrilled to have you with me. I look forward to talking about those opportunities, which are very real. Well, why don't we start out simply by informing our listeners how you got involved in your field of work. I can do that. I'll give you the the brief version Camping as a Boy Scout and having parents that enjoyed camping, taking four boys, my three brothers and I, on camping trips and falling in love with nature. And then my mom and dad encouraging my brothers and I to spend as much time as we needed to learn about nature. So beyond the Boy Scouts, focusing on learning plants and learning animals and learning about wildlife habits was a big part of what I sought out at their encouragement. You know, I think this is such an important point that you make because I think in today's society there are so many electronic devices designed to steal children away from nature and engage them in the screen in truly addictive fashion. And to understand that helping a child spend time in nature 
is not only life-changing at the moment, but it can really steer our course for our future work and profession. So I am so grateful that you mentioned that. One of the questions that I would like for you to address is to simply say, what is ecology exactly? Ecology, most fundamentally, is about the life and the systems on Earth that life is reliant on and interacts with. Mm-hmm. So ecos means home, and ology is the study. So it's basically the study of our home in Latin And what it means to me is really learning about the place I live and the places I experience and love and helping other people do the same. And the opportunities that we have to where we live and where we work and where we worship and where we cherish life on the planet, to share what we learn with others is is such a very important part of being part of that ecosystem bringing others into that knowledge and the the seeing and the knowing is just critical. Mm -hmm. Now I want to talk about ecological services, because I think from my perspective, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I find that it's very difficult to quantify them exactly. And I've read some papers looking, you know, how do we quantify it from a monetary value? And I just don't know that we can really account for all of the benefits, but I'd like to get your perspective on first the definition of ecological services and how we can get a better grip to understand how vital they are to our lives. Sure. The simplest way to explain ecological services is think about what would happen in their absence, what the cost of that would be. So for example, if there were not diatoms and green plants and other life on the planet producing oxygen, recycling carbon dioxide, recycling nutrients and waste products, what would we have to pay for those services? Well, at a global scale, we would never be able to afford what those creatures, those diatoms and microbes and green plants do for us at no cost to us. The cost to us occurs when we begin to impact deleteriously the services they provide for nothing. So, for example, it is possible to quantify with a a good degree of certainty the cost of flood water management. It is possible to cost out what it would take to decompose hazardous wastes and compostable material wastes. Those are services that you can hire, and you can actually get a market-based cost for doing that. You can do the same thing for flood water management. Every city makes a habit of hiring engineering firms and others to figure out what the flood damage reduction or flood water management needs are, and a cost is put on the, the, the benefits, the cost to create the benefits, And in simplest form, the cost to create the benefits can be used as an equivalency of the or the value of the of the ecosystem service in that location. So you can multiply the cost to achieve a certain level of flood management over an area of a thousand square miles by the acreage that you want to project the ecosystem service value of that particular service for. 
and generate a, a reasonably good cost, you know, what it would take to achieve that and the benefit of the achievement. Right now, there's 20 to 30 recognized ecosystem services or environmental services and pollination and flood water management and air cleansing and water cleansing and waste recycling are but a few of the 20 to 30 or more. And some of them are reasonably easy, easily costed, and others, uh, you make assumptions and you take a stab at it with the assumptions, and those assumptions can change over time, so you might up- update it. But it's a wonderful way to be able to compare. For example, is it more valuable to protect a 1,000-acre forest for its water recharge and potable water supply improvements than to create a water treatment plant that takes water out of a river or a lake, cleans that water to potable standards, and then makes it available for drinking. Every time we've done that comparison, nature is always much more efficient. It's much more cost-efficient to let nature provide the service by protecting the 1,000-acre woodland than to build a treatment plant. Every example that I'm aware of at virtually any scale, nature is far more efficient and able to do the work that you know we humans would only aspire to do, but we've never been able to accomplish at large scales. I'm sure you must shake your head then when you see decisions being made without ecosystem services being fully accounted for. Absolutely. If you're doing total cost or full cost accounting in any decision making, and if you're not considering the option of you know what would it cost to enhance nature, restore nature, or protect nature to do the work, mm-hmm. then you're not making as informed a decision as you could be making. Yeah. And more often than not, you're compromising the land, compromising the you know your fiduciary responsibility if you're an elected official, to make a good decision. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll give you a very visceral example that I recently experienced. I had been in Washington, D.C. for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting, and we did a tour before the meeting started of D.C. Central Kitchens. They were doing a wonderful job in feeding the underprivileged, and there was a lovely garden, I would say small farm, actually, that was just across the street from a school where the children would go and not only commune with nature, but the chef would go out and harvest tomatoes. And even he said, these tomatoes burst in your mouth with flavor. And of course, the peacefulness of the garden and farm space with trees that were yielding persimmons and figs. Well, there's been a fight for that property, Pepco Energy, is going to tear down that farm and they are going to put an electric station, some sort of charging facility there. And from a public health lens, I thought of the loss from not only air quality and water quality, but also from a children's health perspective and all that we've been trying to do. So it's been a fight. You know, this was just news to me, but I was so glad to be interviewing you following that experience because I had you in mind when I thought, oh my gosh, all the ecological services that 
people are not aware of. And I don't know how to make them aware of all that we lose when we lose that kind of land use. It's a very difficult conversation because usually in situations like that, adversarial lines are drawn and people shut down and don't listen. The easiest way is to create an objective third party that can walk in with and be viewed as reasonable and have that group request a process that be formalized for evaluation and decision-making. And that, especially in adversarial, you know, confrontational settings about decisions, that's oftentimes the very best way to work through a process that can inject into the conversation different ways of thinking, new ways of thinking, more comprehensive ways of thinking, more circumspect ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. But usually, you know, when the lines are drawn, the bottom line prevails or a regulatory or legal decision prevails and the, the humanity and the ecology and the ecosystem health of the, of the opportunity is uh, left by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And how do groups go about finding these third parties? We've been involved in many projects where the third party has consciously decided to rise up through the fray and go directly to the, the counterparties, usually the regulators, or even more importantly and more powerfully, is to go to the party, the proponent, like the PEPCO, yeah. and offer an, an alternative conversation to the mm-hmm. conversation that might be in play publicly with uh, you know, adversarial or confrontational conversations. Yeah. These are such important strategies to understand when it comes to truly protecting what is most valuable, even though we don't, you know, I think sometimes developers, they consider the the economic bottom line short term without considering the long term effects. So I appreciate having that strategy. I need to take one break because we're halfway through our interview, if you can believe it. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Stephen Applebaum. He is a fellow of the Ecological Society of America and founder and chairman of Applied Ecological Services, which is one of the largest ecological sciences and restoration firms with offices across the U.S. and projects worldwide. He's also the author of three books, which I'll make sure we have a link to your website. And for people who are curious right now, I will tell you it's www. AppliedEco.com. And again, we'll have that link. I was reading an interview of yours, and I've read through your books. And I want to talk about the issue that you brought to the Missouri Prairie Foundation, and that is the issue of climate change. This is an urgent issue. The American Public Health Association has recognized it as being the most critical issue facing us in terms of public health. But you have a concept. You believe that we can reverse climate damage simply by changing the way we manage our land in food production. Tell me what you think. Well, it it turns out that a very substantial part of the excessive greenhouse gases in the atmosphere resulted and continued result directly from the disruption of soil and the carbon 
in the form of organic matter and inorganic carbon in soils. And that disruption occurs with plowing the land and with the use of caustic fertilizers and draining the land that allows organic matter in the soil to compost, to decompose like a compost pile does. Well, what we've learned is that you can use regenerative farming practices, forestry practices, grazing practices, and even home lawn and landscaping practices. And at the scale of very, very large acreages, if policy and incentives were in place, farmers could improve their soil, organic matter, organic carbon, very quickly. It doesn't take a thousand years to create an inch of topsoil, which is what I was taught when I was a Boy Scout. We've been able to generate topsoil at a rate, oftentimes, of several inches over a year or two, eight inches per decade in some systems, and in some wetland systems, even more than that. And what that translates to on a per acre basis is hundreds of tons of additional organic carbon that is removed from the atmosphere by plants, fungi, and microbes, and sequestered into the soil, not on top of the ground like a mulch, but sequestered into the root systems and uh, captured and made more recalcitrant by less vulnerable to decomposition and more durably long-lived by fungi and, and microbes. That can happen very quickly with a change from continuous grazing where we let the cattle out or sheep out and they eat the preferred plants every year or every day, and what remains are weedy plants and a lot of bare soil and erosion. But by running cattle or sheep through the land, emulating the way bison and wildebeest and caribou graze, where they move quickly across the landscape, they might not come back to that same site for months or a year or more. That gives that site adequate time to recover. And a large part of the recovery in these damaged landscapes occurs below the ground because of rapid revitalized root growth on the deep-rooted plant species, particularly native plant species. Mm-hmm. So we've done back-of-the-envelope mathematics and modeling mathematics. And with real data from ranches and different farming operations, it looks to be practical, cost-effective, and scalable if the right policies and incentives were in place to produce very low-cost mitigation for climate that at the same time for every dollar invested improves the quality of the soil, which improves the quality and nutrition of food grown in the soil, improves the water holding capacity, which reduces downstream flooding and its myriad costs, and also simultaneously improves the quality of the atmosphere, creates habitat or contributes to improved habitat up and downstream. It's a wonderful win-win, win-win-win-win by working with nature and this fantastic several billion-year-old process called photosynthesis that nature is really good at, far better than we humans with any sort of contrivances. Uh, Nature can photosynthesize through green plants and put 
atmospheric carbon dioxide back in the soil where a good bit of it came from. Mm -hmm. In looking at the film, Unbroken Ground, there were several examples of food production in a commodity-based system that is harming the soil, releasing carbon, and leading to all sorts of ecological and human health problems. And we see examples of moving in this alternative path where we let nature teach us how to best steward the land and produce food. But you bring up a really important point, and that is, what are the kinds of policies and incentives that we have? And most of those farming policies come through the farm bill, as I understand it. And maybe you're aware of policy shifts, but I'm not seeing them through my field. Are you seeing a change in the direction where we could actually impact climate change? I've seen a trend toward recognizing the value of environmental services that farmers and ranchers produce. And I, I haven't seen the latest drafts of the, of the farm bill that's in progress now that's being drafted. Conversations I've had suggest that it may be moving more toward an ecoservice, environmental service, ecosystem service-based process I think the bottom line is instead of farmers just growing corn and soybeans and cattle, they could be growing, regrowing the water supply in the nation. They can be regrowing soils and getting paid for that, either through an incremental increase in the value of the food they produce that we buy or through some sort of direct payments for improvements that can be measured. So I hope that that's the direction of the future. We certainly need to change in direction from status quo. Absolutely. And I would say that we need to speak about these things with great urgency. One of the other areas that you addressed in your talk, and it's certainly one that's on the top of my list, has to do with biodiversity and how much biodiversity we've lost and how we so desperately need to get that back. Yes. Biodiversity is the fundamental building block, if you want to think of it that way, of yeah. life on the planet. Our very existence, both as an individual, depends on you know, the, the microbes in our gut, uh, the microbes that help us digest food and other functions. As we take antibiotics, we diminish the microbes in our own gut and makes us more vulnerable to a whole series of autoimmune diseases. As we deplete the biodiversity in nature, even with all the built-up redundancy in nature, all sorts of different species that do just about the exact same thing, when we reduce that redundancy to the point where the system can no longer function efficiently, then the system will not continue providing the ecosystem services or it will at a diminished level. So the goal of any policy, the goal of any land management, really should be to, to regrow biodiversity in the soil, the microbes and fungi, all the way up to the plants, the birds, the butterflies, and so forth. All the species that have evolved on the planet have intimate relationships with other species, and it's those relationships, those networks of relationships, that really create the 
ecosystem services that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation and make and retain the healthiness of the ecosystem that we depend on. Well, I have some notes from your talk where you describe how we really can't preserve the future without understanding our past. And I think that's what's so remarkable about your work is that you bring us to a historical understanding of the ways in which nature works or did work before we got the idea that we had to produce our food in this, what we thought was an efficient model. You know, for the sake of efficiency, we were destroying the biodiversity and upsetting the carbon relationships with the soil. And so I, I really appreciate your historical approach to, wait a second, let's take a step back and see if we have some alternatives, some smarter alternatives from a different time. Yeah, what we've learned as scientists is that efficiency in nature is not measured by centralized control and a reduced number of participants in the process. Nature behaves based on a decentralized model and a model of really expanding networks of organisms and relationships between organisms. And what we do is antithetical to the way nature behaves. So everything we do from our yards to our crop fields is focused on de-diversifying and simplifying and countering exactly the efficiencies that nature has evolved and demonstrated to be highly highly efficient. Efficiency in terms of there's zero waste products generated by nature. Everything is an input to a process, and there's organisms that are co-evolved with using anything that might be considered a waste product. And the way energy steps down, if there's a, a big corpuscle of energy, a big pile of chocolate with a lot of calories, the way nature uses that is by slowly working the energy down through different pathways, and the energy is dissipated very, very, very slowly and, and very efficiently through that process of multiple pathways and, and a, a slower rate of speed. We do just the opposite. You know, when we want results, we make it happen today or maybe even sooner than today, maybe now. That's not the way nature defines efficiency, and we have a lot to learn. And with humility, we can be good students and emulate what nature does in more profound ways and more fundamental ways than we've done so far in our management of the land and decisions we make about resources. Well, I have to thank you for a truly enriching half hour, and I'm going to have to invite you to come back to speak more about these topics. But unfortunately, our time is up, and in closing, I need to just thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I especially want to thank my guest, Mr. Stephen Apfelbaum. He is a fellow of the Ecological Society of America and founder and chairman of Applied Ecological Services. He is the author of three outstanding books, Restoring Ecological Health to Your Land, Laughing in the Wilderness, Adventures in the North Woods and Other Stories, and Nature's Second Chance, Restoring the Ecology of Stone Prairie Farm. The website to read more about Mr. Apfelbaum's work and learn more about these 
very important relationships in terms of our children's future, the website is www.appliedeco.com. Mr. Affelbaum, thank you for your time and for all of your good work. My pleasure, and it's an honor to work on these things.